Good evening. Today is Wednesday, December 22nd, 2021, and we are studying the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. This week's chapter is um, Bill's story, step one, and our speaker tonight is David G. Thank you, David G. Take it away. Thank you. Hi, I'm David. I'm a compulsive overeater. Sherry, thank you so much for having me. Um, I feel honored to have gotten this passage. And uh, just to qualify, I came into OA uh, 13 years ago in February, and I just celebrated 11 years of abstinence. And my abstinence is no binging, no purging, no flour, no sugar. And I've read this chapter many, many, many times. Um, but I had a different experience reading it today. And I actually first listened to it on tape on YouTube uh, this afternoon. And I was going through the comments while I was listening. And it baffled me how many people had relapsed in the last year and were sharing about it in the comments on YouTube. Like It's like 90% of the people were in relapse one week, two weeks, three weeks. And... Um, you know, this chapter for me is what it's all about. And for many, many years in recovery, I found uh, the difference, the differences instead of the similarities, Bill is old, he writes old, he's not a great writer, he's too English, blah, blah, blah. Um, but this time I was like, wow, this is what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. And it really lays down uh, what this program is all about for me and, you know, bells and whistles aside and diet plans and treatments and blah, blah, blah. It's just about, you know, finding a higher power, working these principles in all of my affairs and helping others. Like literally, boom, like Ebby Thatcher comes to Bill's house, goes straight to God, doesn't tell him go to a treatment, doesn't tell him get a food plan, doesn't tell him go to the sober eating workshop. It's like, you got to believe in a higher power and that's what it's all about. And then you go through these principles and then you help another person if you want to continue to save your life. And I, I mean, I, I just had this experience reading this today and I could so relate. And for so long in recovery, I just never related to this chapter. And, you know, I'm going to read a couple of passages to kind of break it up into what it was like, what happened and what it's like now, you know, on page five of Bill's story, he says, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope, but gradually things got worse. The house was taken over by a mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My, my wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at the low point and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodi prodigious bender and the chance vanished. I woke up, this had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business. And so I did. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. I mean, that is for me as an alcoholic, as a food addict, that's my mind right there. You know, I will, um, I will make all the promises as a compulsive overeater that this time is going to be different. 
And then I wake up, you know, and I'm, I'm in the cycle all over again. And for me, um, I grew up very different than Bill. I grew up on Long Island in a very, you know, perfect childhood on the outside. My dad's a prominent doctor. My mom's an early childhood trauma psychologist. And on the outside, you know, I went to summer camp and private school and nice cars and uh, just a very comfortable materialistic uh, upbringing. But on the inside, it was just a complete war zone. I mean, you shake my family tree, mental illness falls all the way out all over. And, um, you know, my dad, both my parents have been in and out of the rooms, my mom, psych wards, in and out, uh, suicide attempts, just growing up bipolar, schizophrenic. And, you know, I always share the first memory I have of childhood. My dad was this big, big, scary guy. Um, and I was always like super sensitive. And he, he came home raging one night and he was chasing my sister through the house. And he ended up grabbing her and he was grabbing her by her chins, calling her a fat effing pig. And I was like five years old. I ran through the hallway like Captain Alanon and I jumped on my dad's back and I'm like trying to save my family dysfunction and break it up. And he grabbed me and just like hurled me up against the wall. And I remember looking across this long hallway that we had and my mom was standing in the doorway and I was just screaming and pleading and begging for her to help us and crying. And she went into her room and closed the door. And I don't remember crying again until I came into recovery, to be honest. Five like, minutes elapsed. I just disconnected from my body. And that's what that's what it felt like as a kid. It was every man for himself, fight or flight, war zone. I got to do it all myself. And I ended up testifying against my dad when I was seven and court took away custody and I remember coming home from the lawyers and my mom said, you're the man of the house now. And just thinking like, I don't want to be them. I don't want to do this. Like, I just want a normal family. I just want a mom who will make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And, you know, it was up and down. One moment, my mom was moving to India to live on an ashram and I was being raised by another family. Like, it was just chaos. And for me, I found food at a very young age and food saved my life. Like food was the only consistent thing day in, day out. Without food, I would have been dead. Like no doubt about it. Um, when I came home from school and I was terrified that my dad was going to come to our house, food was always there. When my mom was out, like married to another guy or this guy or dating that guy, food was always there. And it says in the literature, like it's there for us. And then we cross this invisible line and then it's no longer there for us. Then it starts to work against us and I have no control over it. And, you know, I became the fat kid in school. I was 60 pounds, 70 pounds overweight for a long time, bullied, never had the girlfriend, never had the friendships, like just picked on, um, you know, I remember, going to the library one day, I didn't know, you know, the kids were singing a song, Baby Beluga, and I didn't know what it was. And I went to the library and I asked the librarian and she gave me this book and it said something like baby belugas or miniature whales that get up to like 3000 tons of blubber. And I remember just like thinking, everybody's against me, like in this life, like this is just hard. Like my mom is checked out, she's mentally ill. My dad is severely abusive. The kids in school pick on me. Like there is no, I got nothing as a kid. And, but the food was there for me. Like what else am I gonna do? Seriously, what else was there? Like there was nothing there for me other than the food. Um, 
but I crossed the invisible line. And, um, you know, I went years just trying to manage the food, like just trying to get the hits off the food. And it was hard, like going to school and getting picked on and then coming home and just feeling so fucking lonely, like just so lonely, not in like the, not in school, not with my classmates, just like existentially lonely in the world as a kid. Like I, I just felt like an alien. Like I didn't know who my parents, like there was just no security. Like I just, all I'll say is thank God for the food. And um, you know, this, you know, Bill really breaks it down about the final years in a way that I'd never read it before, you know, where he starts talking about the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. A mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that. So two bottles and oblivion, like those final years of hitting bottom where I knew that I needed help, but I still needed the food to get me through, like those were hard years. And um, I ended up, I was living in Manhattan. I was failing out of college. Um, I, had, I hadn't spoken to my dad in 15 years. I'd never been in a relationship. Um, bags of trauma that I hadn't unpacked yet. Sexual trauma that I didn't even wanna go near. Like there was just so much. And um, I just spiraled out in the food. I was going from every single Whole Foods in New York City, just binging, 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 going down to my 24-hour gym in Soho. I wouldn't leave the gym until the calories on the treadmill matched the calories that I counted that day. Diet pills, purging, finding the cozy, you know, the cozy was a restaurant because they had the best bathrooms. You're just as a food addict, as a bulimic, as in what all the things that we are, you're, you just live in a different reality. I wasn't forming true partnerships. I wasn't uh, getting expanding in my work life. I was looking for the cleanest bathroom to purge in. Like that was my life. I didn't have a life. Like there was no life for me when I got here. And you know, then what happened, you know, for, for Bill, it was, he hit his bottom and Ebby Thatcher just shows up at his house with light in his eyes. I love that Ebby is too, like two weeks sober, but he's talking like he's like a long timer. Like, it, you know, for me, the years don't matter. 11 years, great. What matters is how am I practicing these principles in the day that I'm in? And if I'm really connected to a higher power, then I'll have that light in my eyes and I'll be connected like Ebby was. And for me, 10 minutes. Uh, thank you. I ended up hitting my bottom and I was, uh, it was like Thanksgiving and I was in Connecticut and I was just purging and binging my face off. And I remember saying to myself, I'm going to go back to my mom's house on Long Island and I'm going to kill myself. And, but first I'm going to have one more binge. And I'm binging my way through my mom's house on Long Island. And, you know, you, what we do, I'm the wizard. I'm pouring things in, I'm fixing, I'm, you know, microwave, garbage can, taking it out. And as I'm like ravaging through my mom's house in OA 12 and 12 falls out onto the floor. Um, and the miracle, like Ebby, is not that I, that it fell out. The miracle is that Bill opened the door and had a conversation with Ebby Thatcher. For me, the miracle was that I opened up the 12 and 12 and I read it. And it said something in the preamble was like, we of Overeaters Anonymous have found in this fellowship a way to recover from the disease of compulsive overeating. And for me, that sentence just completely 
changed my life overnight because I thought I was early 20s when I got here. I thought all of my life that I was the only person that had this weird food addict. I didn't know even know what it was. I thought it was a punishment from whatever karma that I had. Like, I didn't know that there was a group. I didn't know that there was hope. I didn't know that this was a disease. Like, I didn't know anything, but now I knew. And now, now I can get onto the road of recovery. And the same thing with Bill, like Ebby breaks it down. He says, you have to get a higher power. And they didn't have meetings. But for me, it was like, I went to my sister's house and she was also in this program. And I said, what do I do? I'm going to kill myself. I'm a compulsive overeater. And she printed out the New York City meeting list. And she said, you got to go. And it's great. Abby could like lead Bill to water, but Bill eventually had to drink. And it was same for me. Like I had to start going to meetings. I had to start applying these principles in my affairs. And um, I ended up getting a sponsor and I started working the steps. And, you know, I love in, in Bill's story, they get, they really distill like what is really, really important. And for, for Bill, for me, the first three steps, because if I don't have that foundation, I can make amends all I want to all my ex-girlfriends, to all the people I stole food from. But who's making the amends? Is it David run on self-will or is it David who having been through the filter of the 12 step principles? You know, so for me, steps one, two and three, it's been a trip. I came in here. I mean, sexually abused twice, physically abused by my father hard life, like no doubt about it, not a belief in a higher power. And this idea, you don't have to believe in a higher power, just have your own conception of God, like just have it be whatever you want. And for me, that switch, it wasn't about I had to start imagining what he looked like or she or they, it was just I had to start talking to something that wasn't me. Because David giving David thoughts throughout the day, it's no good. Like, cause David will say one, one bite is going to make it better. And then one purge will make it better. And then, you know, like Bill says, and oblivion. So I had to start talking to a power that wasn't David. And I did that through prayer, even when I didn't believe it. And I used to ask sponsors, like, how do you pray? And I learned prayers in this program. God, can you just protect me from my mind today? Can you help me have a new experience? Can you just be with me, God? I'm scared. And I learned in this program and in all my programs that I had to pray to God like I used to beg my mom for help. And, you know, Emmett Fox, who, uh, God, I'm getting teary, but like, I have to pray with the language of my heart. Like, I can't just routinely do the serenity prayer all day long. Like, I got to get down to where it really hurts. And that's where I meet God. Like, that's just been my experience. Like, I just got to get deep um, and pray with sincerity in my heart and just beg. Like, I wanted to have a mom who would protect me. I'm never going to get that from my mom. My mom just got to have a psych ward. But a higher power has never not been there for me. Um, so I pray with the language of my heart and I beg sometimes. Usually I beg, God, can you just be with me? Because I'm scared because I need so much help because I don't want to do this alone. Like how I am carved out based on my history. I just have a mind that tells me I got to do it all myself. God, can you just show me that that's not true today? And um 
like it says in this in this reading, I have to practice these principles in all of my affairs. It's not just going, five minutes remaining. Thank you. It's not just going through the 12 steps once. It's not just about getting an A plus homework assignment. It's about like living this as a way of life, as, as a design for living. And what hit me today reading Bill's story is there is no Alcoholics Anonymous when he's writing this. Like, obviously, when he wrote the story, there was an Alcoholics Anonymous. But in the context of this story, there's no AA, there's no meetings, there are spiritual principles, and there's service. Like, that's all there was. There was one alcoholic talking to another having him realize that he wasn't alone and then applying spiritual principles to his life and then going and finding people who he could help. And I think in my experience, things can get very complicated and um, there's just a lot of extra in, in program. And for me, I just have to distill it today. Like it's between me and God, it's these 12 step spiritual principles and thank God today I have affairs that I never had, you know, in my life today. And um, there's a few more things that I wanted to read. Yeah, I soon found that when all other measures failed, worked with another alcoholic would save the day. Step 12. And, um, and then he gets to the joy of living. And it says in the AA 12 and 12, you know, the 12th step is about the joy of living. So I'm not doing this shit to be miserable. Like I want to have a good life. And if I'm not having a good life, I'm doing something wrong. So I have to, I have to look at that too. And usually it's, I'm not surrendering something. Um, I'm not giving something up. I'm still, you know, whack-a-mole. Maybe I'm not compulsively overeating anymore, but I'm doing something else that I don't want to share. You know, whatever it is. Uh, and what I loved about Bill is he talks about this in his other papers after he wrote the, you know, this in the 12 and 12. He was still miserable. He was still suicidal. You know, it, this is about emotional sobriety. And I have to give it all to God today. And then I get into the joy of living. You know, the joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. I have seen hundreds of families set their feet in the path that really goes somewhere, have seen the most impossible domestic situations righted. So um, a couple of years into my recovery, I made amends to my dad, which took a lot of work. And um, we have a relationship today. And he gave the toast at my wedding. And I show up for him in his dying years. And I learned in this program that it, hopefully it's a parent's job to teach a child how to live, but it's a child's job to teach a parent how to die. And through the grace of this program, I get to show up for both of my parents who are very, very flawed. And I don't need anything other than that. Like, I don't need a mom. I don't need a dad. I don't need somebody to protect me. I don't need someone to financially bail me out. I just show up for two flawed people who are doing the best they could you know, based on their own traumatic ecosystem. And I don't have to judge it today. I just show up with love and tolerance and that's our code. And, um, you know, I've seen men come out of asylums and resume a vital place in the lives of their families and communities. There is scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome among us. Faith has to work 24 hours a day in us and through us. Most of us feel we need to look no further for utopia. We have it with us right here and now. And um, these 12 steps, when practiced in the day that I'm in, give me that fourth dimensional life. And 
there are times when I'm out of my mind. I'm fighting with my wife right now. She's probably not happy with me right now, but I have 12 steps to get me back. You know, I have a program which isn't just about food or substances. It's about a design for living. And if you're anything like me, you didn't have that. You weren't given that. I didn't give the code. My parents, we didn't sit around a kitchen table with a talking stick saying, all right, son, how is your day? You know, that wasn't how I grew up. So the fact that I'm coming up on three years married, the fact that I have a relationship and I haven't burned it all down, the fact that I have a relationship with my mom and my dad and my sister, the fact that I have a job that I love, um, the fact that I have sponsees who I show up for daily, it's beyond my wildest dreams. And the food is just the beginning. And I could, I could spend my whole share talking about the miracles that have happened because of the food and the body stuff, but that's the least important part of my story today. Um, and I do, I'm at a healthy body weight. I eat three meals a day. I don't mess around with the food. I commit my food to my sponsor every night after I eat it. I do those things when I travel. I bring the same breakfast everywhere I go, whatever country I'm in. Like I make sure that I'm not messing around with the food, but this program's not about the food. None of these 12 step programs are about this, about this, you know, the symptom. I have to get down to the causes and conditions. So thank you so much for letting me share. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. Wow. Amazing, Sherry. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Um, we will now open the meeting for questions or for three minute chairs, as this is a big book study, sharing and questions should relate specifically to the chapter and step being studied this week. We ask you to accept this guideline in order to keep the meeting on track. If you'd like to share or ask a question, please raise your virtual hand, which is under reactions or press start nine and you're, um, if you're on the phone. Uh, and the Zoom host will call the raise hands in order uh, and ask you to unmute when it's your turn. Will the timekeeper please set a timer for three minutes for each share and announce when time is up. So I'll let uh, Robin take over. Great, uh, first up we have Sherry. Thank you so much. Hi, my name is Sherry, and I'm a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater for today. And thank you so much, David. Uh, it's like we're siblings from different families. And what a walking miracle. I mean, it's just miraculous, right? It's a miraculous program. But I have a question for you. And um, the question is, when you're maybe, maybe you've been attracted to sponsees who have similar trauma background, um, but they're not able to let go of that and the story. And you're trying to go through the steps and, you know, release some of these things in step six and seven and four and amends. What, what kind of a, um, suggestions would you have or do you give to your sponsees to help them, you know, get out of the fact that they had a horrific story, but they could have an incredible life today, like you've demonstrated here. And I have that experience. Um, but yeah, any suggestions to help sponsees or people who can't get beyond that? Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, great. So um, I love the AA way that you never say no to a service request and all that stuff. And for me, you know, I didn't share this, but I do want to share this. Based on how I grew up, 
that way of life would kill me, you know, and it almost did. I had 17 sponsees in this program at one point and I was showing up for everybody and I was completely depleted. Um, and I had to get a sponsor and I had to do an inventory of all of my sponsees. And I had to ask a question, which is posed in another program, which I needed to apply to this program. How is this person serving me? And that was, for me, that's the hardest shit that I have to do is like, because I just want to give and be of service and go, go, go. But to actually look inward and say, is this person filling my tank? Am I getting service by being of service? Or am I just in it with them and it's not, nobody's getting better. And just the spiritual axiom that if it's not helping me, it's probably not helping them either. My sponsor takes me back to that all of the time. Um, and, you know, there have been, I have a sponsee who I love, who uh, engages in some behavior that triggers the crap out of me. And I had to tell him, if you want me to sponsor you, you can't take that to me. You have to take it to someone but I can't hear, like, it just sets me off when I hear that behavior and I can't get on that with you. And I can take you through the 12 steps. I can ask you, are you going to meetings? But I can't get into that stuff. Um, but I always take them back, you know, whatever step they're on, I'll remind them or ask them, how is this a step six? You know, you know, because in my experience, whatever step I'm on, I'm having that experience in my life. So if I'm on step six, I'm in my defects somehow and I'm awakening to different defects. So I'll ask them like, how is this a, a reflection of your step six? And I just always try to take it back to the steps and meetings because I'm not a life coach and I'm not a therapist. And I've seen that so often in, especially in OA where sponsors just become like, coaches and that's not what I want and that's not what I want to give for others. Thank you for the question and answer and Amy you're up next. Thank you so much Robin and thank you Roberta both of you for doing service tonight. Um, David thank you so much for your share and your service and your honesty and your vulnerability and also your communication of identifying with the progression in the big book and the intensity of um, the hopelessness. Um, you, when you talked about how it's all about one, two, and three, it's always back to one, two, and three. I was thinking today about how we're taught to qualify and what this book says at the beginning it's about, which is what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And that aligns with one, two, and three. What it was like was that I am, was powerless and my life was unmanageable. What happened is I came to believe in a power greater than myself. And what it's like now is I decide to turn my will over. Not what happened now is I am always in a surrendered state. I'm very much not always in a surrendered state, but I decide. What happened is, is that now I decide um, to get surrendered every time I feel my will coming back. And um, I just, I, I, I wanna thank you for your honesty and your humili humility. And um, I was very, very touched by the share and I'm just very, very grateful to have been in the room tonight. Thank you so much, I pass. 
Thank you, Amy. And up next, we have Susan followed by Angela G. Lots of buttons to press. Hi, Susan, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. David, thank you so much. How unlucky you all are. I've gotten to trudge this with David over all of these years. And what I heard tonight was exactly the purpose of this book, to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered. And that is really what I heard. And obviously when you see somebody go and grow and you're doing the work together. So if you are new, you know, you got that example of hearing that disintegration in those first eight pages. I mean, I don't come from bulimia. I come from morbid obesity. But when you said, you know, you were looking for the, I took notes, David, when you spoke, um, you were looking for the bathrooms, right? I was looking to get into the kitchen and help and see what I could shove and do that you couldn't look. But, you know, to hear your, integration from your disintegration and i can just remember you know and it says and i know because i've heard you speak many times and for all of us no words can tell of the loneliness and despair and you spoke about the loneliness more in the beginning and that's what it says on the first page of bill's story i was very lonely and again turned to alcohol it doesn't say I was hungry. It doesn't say I fancy sticking my fingers down my throat and vomiting. I fancy starving myself till I'm 80 pounds and hospitalized, right? Food was but a symptom. It's those behaviors. And that's what I have to work on. And, you know, it really where he says, you know, he's been catapulted, catapulted. I mean, right out of a cannon, whoosh, there you go. That is such a promise. I was to know into that fourth dimension and happiness, peace and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. And that is very, very true. And the curiosity of when Ebby came to his door, there was something in his eyes. He was inexplicably different. Well, when you saw me as I was losing weight, of course, it was inexplicably different. I wasn't the girl wearing a size 26 dress anymore. So of course, it was gobsmacking, it was shocking. But something changed when I did this work, when I stopped visiting, when I stopped thinking I needed to take another tour, and I wasn't spending enough for that tour. So let me try another one, right? When I completely gave up all the subscriptions, I stopped picking up the free subscription to my head. And you know, ruthlessly facing our sins, becoming willing. I just saw so many things in here and that I saw, you know, in your story. And, you know, I'm just without the power. I'm just without the power on my own and no human power, no nothing could stop me. And so if you are new, welcome to Overeaters Anonymous. And David has a lot of podcasts and I suggest you listen to them. Bye. <laughs> um. We will now stop the recording for unrecorded questions or chairs. Would the Zoom host please stop the recording?